1: liberty, and the pursuit of happiness thousands of times. But have you ever thought about what the founders really meant when they defined the pursuit of happiness as an inalienable right? Some of you
2: have. In our country, my interpretation is that, you know, we should, every single person should do whatever they want to do that makes them happy as long as they're not hurting other people.
1: Thank you, Joel. Well, constitutional scholar Jeffrey Rosen has thought a lot about it, too. His new book is out today, and it's called The Pursuit of Happiness, How Classical Writers on Virtue Inspired the Lives of the Founders and Defined America. In it, Jeffrey Rosen takes a deep dive into the minds and psychology of the founders through what they were reading. Jeffrey joins us after the break to talk about his new book. I'm Elliot Williams, a legal analyst for CNN and for Jen White. You're listening to The 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story— We'll be back with more in just a moment.
0: This message comes from Capital One, presenting sponsor of the 2024 Tiny Desk Contest. Earlier this year, unsigned musicians from around the country submitted their original songs for the 10th annual Tiny Desk Contest. The panel of judges are hard at work picking standout entries, and you can follow along and choose your favorite videos as well. The winner gets to play their very own Tiny Desk Concert, then headline a tour with NPR Music this summer. Want to come along for the ride? Visit tinydeskcontest.npr.org to learn more, then check out the Venture X card from presenting sponsor Capital One. Earn unlimited 2x miles on everything you buy and turn everyday purchases into extraordinary trips. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details.
3: This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Joining me now
1: is constitutional scholar Jeffrey Rosen. He's the president of the National Constitution Center, and he's here to tell us what he learned and why what the founders were thinking then— still matters so much to us today. Jeff, welcome. Thank you. So excited to be here on Publication Day. (laughs) And thank you for spending time with us on Publication Day. So let's start from the top. Why go on a journey to figure out what a group of men
2: were thinking almost 250 years ago? This was an unexpected journey that I started during COVID. I was reading about Ben Franklin's effort in his 20s to achieve moral perfection— He had this system where he made a list of 13 virtues, and every night he would put X marks next to the virtues where he fell short, like temperance, prudence, industry. So um, I knew about this system because a friend and I uh, had tried this with a rabbi a few years ago. There's a Hebrew version, Mm -hmm. and we put X marks every night next to where we fall short. It's an incredibly depressing project, so we (laughs) gave it up after a while. But during COVID, I I noticed that Franklin had as his motto... Uh, A book by Cicero called The Tusculan Disputations that I'd never heard of, Mm -hmm. and the motto was, without virtue, happiness cannot be. A few weeks later, I was seeing that Jefferson made a similar list of 12 virtues that he sent to his daughters, and he also used as his core definition of happiness this book from Cicero that said... Uh, Without virtue, happiness cannot be. And only with tranquility of mind can you really achieve happiness. So I thought, okay, I've got to read this Cicero book I'd never heard of. What else to read? Hmm. Jefferson had a reading list that he would send out to kids who were going to law school and, and friends throughout his life. And I found on this reading list 10 books in the category called Ethics or Natural Religion. And the first one was the Cicero, Tusculan Disputations, then Stoic philosophers, Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus, Seneca, as well as Enlightenment philosophers. So during COVID, I just set out to read these books and others on Jefferson's reading list. And what I learned came as a revelation. For the founders, happiness was not being good, it was... Or rather, it wasn't feeling good, it was being good. It wasn't the pursuit of pleasure, it was the pursuit of virtue. Remember we heard Joel say, happiness is just doing whatever you like? Mm -hmm. The founders had a different definition. It was self-mastery, self-reliance, character improvement, being your best self so you could serve others. It was the idea that comes from Aristotle of uh, total um, mastery of your passions and emotions, using your powers of reason to moderate your Mm. unreasonable passions so you can achieve that calm tranquility that defines, uh happiness. And this definition just changed the way I thought about how to be a good person and a good citizen. And it's the most exciting reading project I've ever had.
1: Now, I'm going to pounce on something that you you may not expect me to pounce on based on what you just talked about there, but the word COVID, uh, which you said, this was a period where I assume you and many people, many listeners right now were home and finding what contentment and happiness was to them. To what extent might the period in which you
2: were exposed to this form of thinking have affected your approach to this book? It was central. I'm so glad you picked up on that. You know, there was a, there was time to read, basically. And I developed this very unusual practice that I certainly wouldn't have done if it hadn't been COVID. I'd wake up in the morning, read from the wisdom literature, watch the sunrise... And then write a sonnet summing up the wisdom that I learned. Now, this is a rather weird practice. I didn't expect to be doing this. But I, I found this urge to kind of sum up the wisdom in, in concise and, and classical form. And then it just blew my mind when I learned that I learned all sorts of people in the founding era, like the great poet Phyllis Wheatley, Hamilton, John Quincy Adams, would also— get up early, re- read from Cicero, as, as Quincy Adams did, and write sonnets. So there, there's something that was in the air that uh, d- led to this unusual practice, and it, and it wouldn't have happened without COVID.
1: I'll be truly impressed if your next answer is repeated to me in sonnet form, <laughs> um, in the pentameter, third, however many lines. But uh, needless to say, let's go back uh, to the book, and let's talk about, you, you pointed a few times about the virtues, and these virtues that both Franklin and Jefferson had identified uh, 12 or 13, uh, that you said, can you just walk us through some of them? What were some of these things? Um, You know, it doesn't have to be an exhaustive list, of course, but I'd be curious as to uh, what some were.
2: Absolutely. I have 12 chapters, and each one focuses on a different virtue and a Mm. different founder. So it starts with order. Um, Franklin had little mottos for each of these. Uh, Temperance is crucial. These all are jumping off of the four classical virtues of temperance, prudence, fortitude and justice. Mm. And the idea of temperance, of moderating your unreasonable emotions and passions so you can achieve that calm, tranquility is central. Humility was a virtue that Franklin didn't have on his original list. And a Quaker friend told him to put it on. And he said that was the one he had the most trouble achieving, as, Mm. as most of us do. But that's an important one. And then industry is so important. The one the founders fell short of so many of their virtues, and, and we'll talk about the most notorious, including their, their, some of them were enslavers. Mm. But until the end of their life, um, they were incredibly industrious in their reading. They would make these reading lists, and Jefferson would say the time of day where you're supposed to read stuff like – um politics and government and history in the in the morning and then literature as a reward in the in the afternoon when the when the mind is flagging after lunch mm-hmm. and seeing them Jefferson and Adams trading letters, excitedly discussing the books they were reading all until their 80s, and keeping up that remarkable schedule of, of industrious reading and writing is really inspiring. Now,
1: uh, you preempted what would certainly have been my next question, and it's a big one whenever we talk about the framers of the country and this this question of slavery. Many, as we, as we all, many would know, are slaveholders. How do we reconcile this most Indelible stain on America's moral reputation, perhaps in history, arguably so, when thinking about some of these universal rights that the framers were enshrining in the Declaration and then later on in the Constitution, which we'll talk about in a
2: bit. Well, we can't reconcile it. And the most surprising thing that I learned is that the framers did not attempt to reconcile it either. Mm. They acknowledged the remarkable hypocrisy of the fact that they. All of the enslaving Virginians recognized slavery as a violation of the natural rights declared to be self-evident in the Declaration, and yet were unable to give up the lifestyle that slavery made possible. I found this amazing quotation from Patrick Henry where he said that he considered it... Amazing that he and his fellow Americans, who were so fond of liberty, allowed slavery, a practice as repugnant to humanity as it is inconsistent with the Bible and destructive to liberty. And Henry says it's just avarice or greed that makes him not give it up. He says, Would anyone believe that I am the master of slaves of my own purchase? I'm drawn along by the general inconvenience of living without them. I will not. I cannot justify it. Mm. And that was the surprise, that they didn't try to justify it. They knew it was hypocrisy. They saw it in the classical terms as greed or avarice, which they attributed to their own inability to be virtuous, but they just couldn't live without it. And it it, it
1: helped their happiness. You can be happier if you're not doing work in the fields, perhaps,
2: right? Well, no question. I mean, it's not just a violation of frugality, their avarice, but all of these virtues that they practice. Industry, resolution, moderation, all possible in the case of the enslavers because of enslaved labor. And and Jefferson constructed for himself this kind of idyllic fantasy land at at Monticello where he's imagining himself uh, being industrious and he's he's thinking his great thoughts, all possible, not only with... Enslaved labor, but enslaved labor—people uh, pe- who are his own children. Of course. Now, broad, staying
1: on the, the concept of slavery, but more a different point about this idea of universal values and what was important enough to enshrine. And obviously, there were values that the framers regarded as not universal to everyone. Owning property, for instance, voting—some of the basics that folks got over time, but somehow they regarded happiness as universal and the concept of happiness. like what, So I guess the question is, would the framers say that even slaves or women are entitled to be happy even if
2: they can't own property? No, no question about it. Um, happiness is an unalienable right. What, is, what does that mean? It means a right that can't be alienated or surrendered when you form a society. And the framers thought that happiness is unalienable because it's a product of our reason. And I can't alienate to you the power to control my reason or to tell me what to think. I can't entirely control it myself. It's inherent in who I am as a human being. And that's why everyone is entitled to the unalienable right to pursue happiness. And it's so striking that the great black poet, Phyllis Wheatley, who read the same classical literature, came to the same conclusion about happiness and virtue being unalienable rights. And it's inspiring to see how some of the greatest freedom fighters in American history, like David Walker and the great Frederick Douglass, all read the same literature. Concluded that happiness, or self-reliance, or reason was unalienable and then criticized the framers for not living up to their own ideals. It's fascinating because they, the framers, might have not uh, championed
1: equality, but they were great, thoughtful writers. And the deliberate use of that term "inalienable" is, is quite powerful when you think of that inalienable as a modifier for uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Let's hear this message we got from one of you.
2: This is Nancy from West Virginia. Originally, the uh, written sentence was the pursuit of property, and they changed it to the pursuit of happiness. I think that's interesting that it was originally property.
1: Thank you so much for that message, Nancy. Now, fortunately, we've got a preeminent constitutional scholar here uh, sitting in front of us. Tell us about that, uh, Nancy's uh, statement about property being changed to happiness. What do you know about that?
2: Well, Nancy's right that the Virginia Declaration of Rights, which was one of Jefferson's sources for the Declaration of Independence, did talk about life, liberty and property. Uh, Jefferson never had property in his draft of the Declaration because property is an alienable right. You can and must surrender to government the power mm. to regulate your property when you form a society in a way that you can't surrender your Right to pursue happiness or your freedom of conscience, because those are based on reasons. John Locke talks about life, liberty, and property in the second treatise, although he doesn't call them unalienable rights, they're just natural rights. But interestingly, the phrase the pursuit of happiness in Locke comes not in the second treatise, but in a, a book called An Essay Concerning Human Understanding, and it's about the way we form our ideas rather than the way we form our societies. It was really exciting for me to go through all of this literature and see that that phrase, the pursuit of happiness, occurs in John Locke in Francis Hutcheson in these preachers called Willitson and Tolleson and in, in Blackstone as well as in Cicero and Seneca. It's just people can't stop talking about the pursuit of happiness. Jefferson didn't get it from just one place, but it's in the air and it was considered an, alien, an unalienable right. Now, you've
1: called property an alienable right uh, and you sort of just accept that it is. Is it an alienable right because we've chose to make it one or could we actually live in a society where, no, you just have the right to property and no one can take that from you? I'm curious as to your view on that.
2: That's interesting. Alienable rights are only those where there's some useful benefit that you can get in exchange for surrendering the power to regulate it. So that's why conscience and happiness, you can't get anything in in return. You could say, uh, if you were a real libertarian, that there's absolutely no benefit to uh, government regulation, that self-defense is good. And rather than having a police force, people should uh, enforce their own private vengeance and therefore we shouldn't form societies at all. But I think most natural rights theorists have concluded that some regulation of property is probably a good idea. Fair enough. Now – let's
1: go to the modern day. And you say in the book that the collective definition for the pursuit of happiness changed after World War II. Baby boomers were the me generation. Almost, you know, we chuckle when we say that. And almost the the casual expression, you do you, became the national mantra. And so I guess the question is, how has pop culture
2: changed and evolved in this definition of how we define happiness? It's really remarkable how striking it is that this ancient definition, which is pervasive throughout history from ancient times all the way to the 1950s or 60s, just drops out of the picture. I went to college in the 80s, and I remember I was hungry for some guidance about how to live a good life. Uh, It was an alternative to the materialism and hedonism that was celebrated by popular culture. I didn't realize that the definition was hiding in plain sight because this just dropped out. Now, you know why it happened is a complicated story. Some have uh, blamed Freud and the evolution of uh, from character to personality. Others blame the post-structuralists. Uh, Christopher Lash wrote a book called The Culture of Narcissism. But whatever the exact cause, it's obvious from Joel's first comment on, on the show that our modern definition of happiness as celebrated in pop culture is just totally different from this ancient idea of self-mastery and, and self-control and character improvement and now we think that uh, let it all hang out and do whatever feels good in the moment. It's the opposite of the classical definition.
1: Let's stay on the the ultimate example of self control and character development: social media. And uh, toward the end of the book, you talk about how social media has contributed to our lack of temperance today. I think it's a fair statement to agree <laughs> with that, and I think many listeners would as well. How can we apply what we what we you've learned about the founder's sensibilities? to happiness and contentment
2: in the age of social media. Well, I found one unexpected life hack, which is just early in the morning, reading rather than browsing. Just just that habit of not reaching for your phone, as of course I do all the time, and idly browsing a website, but instead doing deep reading is the greatest antidote to the distractions of social media that can possibly be imagined. Fair enough. Um, Okay,
1: let's take a quick pause here. Still to come, we discuss the latest threats to the U.S. Constitution and why knowing what the founders meant by the pursuit of happiness still matters today. Stay with us.
3: This episode's sponsor is PWC, which offers the following message. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. PWC pairs the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. Human-led and tech-powered, it's all part of the new equation from PwC.
0: This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on.
1: Let's get back to our conversation with this message we got from one of you.
2: My name is Barbara. I'm calling from Atlanta. The one thing that makes me the happiest is living up to conscience. In my opinion, the guarantee of the inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness means that all human beings are charged with the right to live up to conscience and be the best human beings that they can be. Mm. Thank
1: you so much, Barbara. And that mm, was Jeffrey, uh, who's uh, very much uh, touched by what you said there. Jeffrey, before moving to today's politics, uh, you seemed moved or touched by uh, what Barbara had said right there. What are your responses? It's the most
2: beautiful and eloquent uh, distillation of the the classical understanding of Mm. happiness, living up to conscience so you can be your best self. Uh, The the ancients believed that conscience was a hardwired, intuitive, moral sense that we had. Uh, Socrates described it as a kind of inner oracle that always told him how to do the right thing. And that idea that we have to live up to conscience in order to be our best self so that we can serve others is exactly what the framers understood as the pursuit of happiness. Beautiful. So let's—
1: move to uh, out of the world of poetry into the world of prose and talk about today and our politics today and some of some questions in interpreting that very Constitution and to some extent, Declaration of Independence you write about today. Now, obviously, the Constitution's been in the news a lot. And as many of you are aware, former President Trump is arguing to the Supreme Court that presidential immunity protects him from prosecution. So first off, this idea of presidential immunity, where does it come from?
2: Well, it doesn't come from anywhere right. because there there isn't it's not rooted in American history. The idea that the president is not a king is probably the central idea of the of the Constitution. And in fact, just to relate the pursuit of private happiness with public happiness, which I learned there's a, a direct connection between, the framers think that personal self-government is necessary for political self-government. Unless you can master your own turbulent emotions and your anger and your desire to be partisan as an individual then we won't be able to achieve the same harmony as a society. And that's why the framers think of the Constitution as something where power can't be vested in absolute power in a president. The main job of the Constitution is to avoid demagogues who are going to flatter the people and then turn themselves into authoritarians. And that's exactly why. Even the strongest proponents of executive power, like Alexander Hamilton, insist that the president is amenable to the law. That's why the D.C. Circuit uh, unanimously rejected the idea of blanket uh, presidential immunity And now we'll see what the Supreme Court does.
1: And likewise, um, and staying on this question of these legal questions, these questions of constitutional interpretation that are being considered now, Supreme Court last week heard arguments on this question of the 14th Amendment and its ban on insurrectionists running for president and how that might affect uh, former President Trump and his ability to run. Now, 14th Amendment was added after the Civil War, as we know, and it bans those who engage in insurrection from holding certain offices. I raise both of these things because in both of these instances, we are trying to divine the words, divine the meanings and intentions, sort of as you do to some extent in your book, of words written by people 200 years ago. And, and my question is, is trying to get into the heads of these people hundreds of years ago itself a flawed exercise? Can we even do it
2: with a straight face? Well, there's certainly a big difference between trying to get into their heads by reading the books they read and getting a sense of their general yeah. moral framework, which I, I tried to do in the book, and trying to channel exactly what James Madison would have thought about social media or, mm. or insurrections, which is uh, impossible in the case of social media because there was no social media. There's a big debate today about whether the framers themselves intended for us to parse their text and try to think about how they would read it or to look at the uh, ordinary public meaning on our own. Jefferson is is an unlikely patron saint for strict construction because he thought Mm. there should be a new constitutional convention every 19 years. And the Constitution has to be interpreted in light of the views of majorities today rather than in the past. And really, it's an open question about whether... Even this kind of strict constructionist parsing is something that any of the framers would have been in favor of. Nevertheless, it's what we have to do on the Supreme Court today. And it was fascinating and important to hear the historical debates about insurrection, whether they would have expected states to enforce the 14th Amendment on their own or not. And at the very least, it forced Americans to engage in our history, compare Mm -hmm. today to the Civil War period. Think about it, insurrections then and insurrections now. Mm -hmm. And make some arguments
1: now there's a push today, usually typically from the the right or further right um, up to have another constitutional convention, and is that all simply just carrying Jefferson's mantle, saying that we ought to just rethink
2: the the, the core documents of our country every couple hundred years. It's very Jeffersonian. Madison thought it was a terrible idea. He thought it was a miracle that the first convention succeeded and it would be crazy to risk messing stuff up with another convention. As it happens, the national constitutions that are last year held a virtual convention of liberal, conservative, and libertarian scholars. Mm -hmm. And what blew our minds is that in a state of nature, a state of Zoom in about a week, (laughs) this amazing group of diverse scholars proposed five constitutional amendments. They actually agreed on the language of five amendments. And just briefly, just to sure, sure. sense of what they are. Um, first, uh, term limits for Supreme Court justices, uh, making it a little easier to amend the Constitution, a little harder to impeach, but easier to convict in the Senate, resurrecting the legislative veto that it will allow Congress to say no to the president by a majority vote rather mm. than two-thirds, and ending the natural-born citizenship requirement to be president. None of them big uh, things about rights, but all structural reforms that all sides agreed on. And I just thought that was very significant that there was such agreement among such diverse people. And none politically
1: controversial at all. There would be, I can't imagine there'd be a fight over lifting the birthright citizenship ban or
2: whatever else. It might be. You know. Well, the good, good, good point. But it, it does suggest that there's a vital center in America, as reflected in this group, that if they could just get free of the extremes, might actually be able to agree on stuff. Excellent
1: point. And let's stay on that. This idea of the vital center, um, maybe it exists. It doesn't appear to be exist again. This is the social media point or the world we live in um, or what we see. But let's talk about our moment and where we are in a, as a constitutional democracy. And why is this moment today With the calls for constitutional conventions or a president in the Supreme Court, what does this all mean for our democracy and our constitution? Well, just
2: descriptively, we are more polarized than at any time since the Civil War, which Mm -hmm. is a very serious state of uh, affairs. And the other thing that's very serious is that because of social media and new media technologies, it's possible for demagogic politicians to flatter the extremes, play to their base, aggrandizing their own power, I alone can fix it, and risk inciting violence to subvert the Constitution and the rule of law. And that is the definition of a demagogue that Hamilton and Jefferson and Madison feared. I came across this amazing letter where Jefferson, he gets a copy of the Constitution from Madison, and he says, there are two things I don't like here, and uh, one is the lack of a Bill of Rights, and the second is that a demagogic president might lose a bid for re-election by a few votes, cry foul, try to enlist the states who voted <laughs> for him on his behalf, and install himself as a dictator for life? It's just amazing. It's, it's clairvoyant. It's, it's totally, it- totally incredible. His his solution is one-year term limits for presidents because he thinks if you can't run again, then you won't risk being a demagogue. But it's much. We're much more susceptible to demagogues now than then because of social media and cable TV, and that's really dangerous. Now. Um, One, you you touched on the no
1: kings point. Our framers created the idea of not having someone be in for the rest of his or her life. There was also suspicion about um, parties, factions, and to what extent is – quickly – to what extent is the polarized moment we're in, uh, would Madison be cringing at
2: it? This is Madison's nightmare. Factions are his greatest fear. A faction is any group, a majority or a minority, animated by passion rather than reason, devoted to self-interest rather than the public good. We're living in an explosion of passionate factions, and it's really a threat to the Madisonian system. Let's hear a question from
1: Jessica, who has written this. Shouldn't the meaning of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness be seen as a perspective that shifts and changes over time with society? The writers of our nation's documents could never have imagined the world. We were just talking about this a second ago, Jeff. Could never have imagined a world in which we currently live, just as we cannot know the world of our future great-grandchildren. These ideas are dynamic. Thank
2: you for writing into that with that, Jessica. Any thoughts, Jeff? Absolutely. It's, we can't think of anything more dynamic than the pursuit of happiness. It's the right of every individual to pursue their own life's course according to their own talents as they see fit according to the dictates of their own conscience, as we heard earlier so beautifully. And that changes and alters and each individual has to decide for him or herself exactly what the pursuit of happiness means. The only constant, and the, the founders had very great faith in this, is the universal truth of reason. These are mm. people of the Enlightenment. They have great faith in our ability to align our lives with the divine harmonies of the universe, which they associated with reason, and to the degree that reason is under threat from social media and elsewhere, we're, we're in trouble.
1: Now, staying on the question we talked about a few moments ago uh, in our conversation, this idea of amending the Constitution or uh, or whether the Constitution was written correctly or not, and I'd be curious to ask you as a scholar of the Constitution, what do you think the founders got right? Like, what... What did they get right? I mean, clearly the Supreme Court is grappling with some of this language. That's not to say they got it wrong. But what, what
2: did they do right? They got right the shining importance of popular sovereignty, that we the people hold the power, and also parceling that out so it doesn't go all to one president or one king or one Congress or one group of judges. That idea of separation of powers has proved to be the most enduring protection for liberty. What's the difference between us and, uh, you know, Putin? Our president can't order people into war or say that someone could be killed because he doesn't like them or call up judges and tell them how to rule. The central importance of dividing power and the complicated system of federalism and checks and balances has protected liberty, has saved us from demagogues for more than uh, 200 years And the constant quest for a more perfect union, never perfect from the beginning, but always more embrace, more expansive, uh, extending its guarantees to more and more people who are left out is part of the American story. Wonderful. Now, I didn't read
1: your book to be self-help. Um, in, a, in a way it might be, but I'd be curious as to your thoughts as to how much it's up to individuals to live up to the founder's promise of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And more more importantly, here's this the self-help portion. How can they?
2: You know, I, I think it is self-help, or certainly the, the books that I read are self-help books by Cicero and Ben Franklin. And I experienced them as such. Um, it, it sort of inspired me to try to be a better person, to get up, earlier and do my reading and writing and be more thoughtful and try to make the best of my talents. It kind of, you know, all of this crazy sonnet writing was a new <laughs> practice. Just the idea, and the idea, I can't believe I wrote the book to tell you the truth in a, in a year. Just the idea oh, wow. that a, a little bit of writing every day, just an hour or, or, or two of focused work, and you can just uh, ch- change your whole Life, so it's very, it's a very much a philosophy of individualism. Frederick Douglass is the most inspiring about this. After the Civil War, he would give a speech called "Self Reliance," where he talked about encountering this wisdom on the streets of Baltimore, where he read a book called "The Columbian Orator" with excerpts from Cicero and Ben Franklin. He he paid for the book with bread that he uh, brought he was so devastated when his wicked master said he couldn't learn how to read. He felt that that was almost as great an enslavement as his shackles. And he taught himself to read. And with this book became convinced that every individual has the right and the responsibility to Be our best self so we can serve others and change the world. So it's this shining faith in the individual and an individual effort. And it is within our power. Here's another thing that's really exciting. The basic wisdom is that we are what we think. Life is shaped by the mind. And that as we imagine ourselves to be, so shall we be. Uh, To use an epigraph from Paracelsus that my dad uh, loved to quote It's the wisdom of the Bhagavad Gita and the Dhammapada about the central importance of controlling the only thing we can, which is our own thoughts. And it's very, very empowering. In terms of the things we
1: can control, Amy uh, has written into us, one of the most important concepts I ever learned was for every right in the constitution, there are responsibilities. You have the right to free speech, but the responsibility to speak the truth and not defame and not hurt people with your words. I have tried to live by this concept of rights and responsibilities ever since. The Framers got it right in some sense, and Jeff, you've touched right on a lot of it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Elliot. It was so wonderful to launch the book with you. Really appreciate it. Thank you. That was Jeffrey Rosen, president of the National Constitution Center with a new book out today called The Pursuit of Happiness, How Classical Writers on Virtue Inspired the Lives of Founders and Defined America. Thanks again. Today's producer was Emil this program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University on Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Elliot Williams. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with its original podcast on investing. Each week, hosts Lizanne Saunders, Schwab's chief investment strategist, and Kathy Jones, Schwab's chief fixed income strategist, along with their guests, analyze economic developments and bring context to conversations around stocks, fixed income, the economy, and more. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com oninvesting or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR.